Joshua chapter 3, if you'll join me there. At this point in our study now with the children of Israel, they find themselves right on the border now of the promised land, and we're actually going to see this is sort of a... Uh, you know, incredible transitional moment where after all these years of God's promise resonating in the hearts of the children of Israel, if you think of it in some ways, all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years as far as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these promises that God's given to the people of Israel that they would one day inherit uh, the promised land and then after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness waiting now for the older generation to pass off the scene uh, that this new generation in faith would be able to enter in and experience God's promised land that he had uh, said that he would give to the children of Israel we now come to Joshua's leadership and they're now right on the edge of the promised land on the edge of the Jordan if you would and we'll see in chapters 3 and 4 God's now going to bring them in uh, to the promise of God for them, to bring them into the fullness of what he's intended for them. And, you know, it's really just a really wonderful thing to recognize that sometimes that is indeed the pattern of God. Sometimes God has to bring us out of what we're not supposed to be in to bring us into the thing that we're supposed to be a part of and experiencing. And in a lot of ways, that's quite frankly the, the testimony of so many of our lives is, is God had to bring us out in order to bring us in and God brings us out of a lot of times bondage and slavery in our past and the way we were living which was not according to God's plan or purpose and it had a suffering and difficulty attached to it but God brings us out of what we were in to then bring us into the good things the promise the plan of God that he has for us and of course all of this just depicts uh, our lives in so many ways as this is now happening for the children of Israel they're going to now be brought in to God's good plan and purpose for their lives. And it's just a testimony and reminder of what he does for us. He saves us. He takes us at times through a wilderness experience. But then after that time of being in the wilderness, God says, look, I, I have something more for you, something better for you. And it's a picture in many ways of even after we experience salvation and deliverance out of Egypt. And so God gets us out of Egypt. He delivers us by a mighty hand and, and by a redeemer like Moses who comes and leads us out salvation through Jesus and, and he takes us uh, into this new life. But then as a Christian, sometimes we uh, spend some time then maybe kind of wandering in our own wilderness experience trying to learn and figure out the Christian life and then there comes a point sometimes where God says, but listen, there's actually more to this Christian life that you're experiencing. There's a whole land full of promises and abundance and something much better, something much greater, victory over enemies and conquering territory that you never knew you could. And God says, okay, we've been in the wilderness wandering long enough. And now it's time to go into the, the promised life of the Spirit and to experience my fullness. And sometimes God has that for us like they cross the Jordan. God has this baptism of His Spirit, this experience where we would then enter into the fullness as we come through the waters of being perhaps baptized by God's Holy Spirit and we then begin to experience uh, the Christian life and its full dynamic, a walk in the Spirit, victory in the Spirit, and all of what God promises to us. So again, we remember that these things are pictured and portrayed here even as we look at what's happening with Israel here historically. So let's pick it up here in chapter 3, verse 1. God's told Joshua to prepare the people to get them ready because they're about to be enter into the land. And it says in chapter 3, verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And I have that underlined because as you go through the book of Joshua, you'll notice that phrase is going to surface a few different times about Joshua. Uh, I believe it shows up in chapter 5. I believe it shows up in chapter 6. And a couple different times that statement is attached to Joshua, that Joshua rose early in the morning and shows you this man who was a, a godly man and obviously a spiritual leader one of the things connected to his life was he was someone who found the discipline of rising early in the morning and and sometimes that indeed is a necessity if we want to in some ways have some quiet time alone with the Lord and if you have any realm of responsibility or leadership and and I can't impress upon you all the more as a man if you have just the leadership of being a spiritual leader uh, this is vital this is incredibly helpful 
because before all the voices come and the ideas and the responsibilities and, and all that a day begins to unfold as soon as everything and everyone begins to wake up, there's something very valuable about rising a little bit earlier in the morning when it's quiet and the day hasn't begun to just have some time to commune with God and to spend with the Lord and get your marching orders from Him so that you can effectively not just navigate your own life but be able to provide some leadership if God's giving you a role of leadership to to others around you. And and much like David and and others and even Jesus in the New Testament, we see there in Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus, a long while before daylight, uh, got up and went out to a solitary place where He just, it seems, spent time alone with the Father communing with his father, talking things through, praying. And that was what sort of set the, uh, the stage for each day that Jesus knew kind of he was sensitive to what God wanted and how he stood in fellowship. So Joshua, just again, another great mark of him as a godly man, a godly leader. He rises early in the morning, it says, and they set out from the Acacia Grove where they were camped and they came to the Jordan. The idea is they're coming now to the banks of the Jordan River itself and all the children of Israel and they lodged there before they crossed over. And verse two says, so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. So here instruction now begins to come of how they're going to cross over the Jordan River and actually get into the promised land. And here we take notice, they go right down, it seems, to the banks of the Jordan. And and keep in mind here, in in this whole imagery here, you're talking a, a mass of people here, upwards to a few million people, all their tents, their flocks, their herds. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a big Uh, monstrosity of a crowd of people now crammed to the bank of the Jordan River and they go there and then it's almost as if the sense you get here is that God puts them it says verse 2 in a holding pattern for three days and they're kind of sitting there and and, uh, he says look when you see the ark begin to move that's when you begin to move but the idea is you don't move until you see the ark of God begin to move forward and then you follow that which of course remember is representative of the presence of God but God sort of puts them in a holding pattern for about three days here which is very interesting they're sitting there they're at the Jordan River we know from verse 15 that this is the time when the Jordan River was at flood stage verse 15 tells us so this is the spring time of year when the the, the mountain snow the, the runoff of, of that is causing the Jordan to be uh, at a much a wider uh, sort of uh, you know expanse. It's it's full of mud. It's running quickly. It's it's that time of year. And there they are at this holding pattern for three days, just kind of staring at the Jordan. And and like you and I, they're probably thinking, how are we getting across over there? Uh, you know, I mean, are we building rafts here, or are we gonna? I mean, are we gonna? He's not expecting us to like swim across that thing, is he? And and probably the kids are, Daddy, how are we getting across? What are we gonna do? And 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 for three days they're looking at this situation, and perhaps they're even beginning to kind of look at it as again as at its flood stage, thinking this is like the least likely time that we should do something like this. I mean, couldn't we wait till the summer when the Jordan's a lot more narrow and it'd be much easier practically to cross? I mean, this looks like the most impossible time to take this step of crossing over into the promised land. I mean, this seems like the most unlikely time of year. Why would now be the time that we're about to cross? I mean, keep in mind, we've waited 40 years. What's the difference? I mean, at that point, what does it really matter? And perhaps God has them there just kind of in that way where they're thinking through some of that. And they're probably like you and I and they're human mentality try and think through their solutions you know how we do that you know we we sense god's leading us to do something so we start working through all of our human solutions of okay well maybe maybe we'll do this or maybe he's going to lead us to do that and the reality is is god is going to lead them in the most unlikely way they would have ever imagined Uh, again here they are and they're staring at this and they're kind of wondering and maybe thinking this seems very impossible this seems like it's not the right time it's not the right place and as they're there God says to them listen wait there and when you see the ark verse 3 of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and Levites bearing it then once you see the ark start to move he says you shall set out from your place and follow after it again as we said before the ark remember was the place where God chose 
to manifest his presence. So the ark is a, a representation of the presence of God. And so basically they are being instructed here, listen, you don't move until you see the presence of God begin to move. When, when, when you see the presence of God begin to move, when you see the presence of God beginning to go before you, and we'll read this repeatedly throughout the chapter, that God was going before them. The ark would go before them. Again, God's never going to lead us somewhere where he isn't the one leading the way and going before us. And we can be absolutely confident, no matter how unlikely it looks or what the situation or the obstacles or circumstances, if God's the one leading and God's going before us, we have one responsibility. Just follow where God is going and just get behind the Lord and let his presence be the one to direct what's going on. So he says here, when you see the ark of God, when you see the ideas, when you see God start to move, then go after it. You, you go after the Lord. And, that, and that's the key to the Christian life. You know, we don't want to run ahead of the Lord and say, Lord, here, we're going to do this. And can you come along and help us out in the process? Or we don't want to lag behind the Lord. If the Lord starts to move, we need to follow the Lord and where he's leading and, and in what way he's moving and whatever step of faith that is. And sometimes, listen, part of the Christian life is taking steps of courageous faith. And the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. In some ways in our Christian experience, and as certainly as we grow as Christians, there should always be, in a sense, an element of faith in our lives. It's good sometimes to evaluate your life as a Christian because the Bible says that we walk by faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, then I would have to say as a Christian, if we're living in a mature, fruitful Christian experience, there should always be some aspect of our Christian life where we're living in a way that it requires faith. Ask yourself tonight, is there anything that you're doing right now as a Christian that requires faith? Or do you have everything figured out, pinned down? You know, you have all your safety secure systems. Is there anything that you're doing, any steps at all that you're taking, whether it's, you know, maybe some seemingly major step of a life change, or maybe it's just the step of, you know, I'm going to try and share the gospel with somebody, or I'm going to try and, you know, walk in the spirit a little more openly and, and, and that takes faith because I, I've kind of never been open to that area before and is there any area where you're having to trust the Lord in and you don't have it all figured out and you're willing to trust the Lord and to go after him where he's leading and let him take you into what he wants for you again Jesus and Joshua the picture here wants to take us into the next steps into the next seasons he always wants to take us forward in the christian life there's no such thing as a christian as as just being at the status quo either you are moving forward or you're drifting back christians don't stand still if we're not moving forward spiritually then you're only doing one other thing you're sliding backwards be very careful of the mindset of oh, i mean i'm not backsliding I'm, I mean, I'm holding my ground. I'm not taking any steps forward. <laughs> Haven't grown in years, but I mean, I'm not on the backsliding. No, if you're not moving forward, I assure you what's happening is you're going backward. You may not want to admit it. You may not recognize it, but you either move forward or you shrink back. And so here again, you see the place God go after it, go forward. Maybe the Lord's calling some of you to go forward in a way perhaps that you haven't been recently. Verse four, he says, yet notice the next part of the command, there shall be a space between you and it, between them and the ark, about 2000 cubits by measure. Remember a cubit's about 18 inches. So this is a space, a gap of about 3000 feet. God's saying leave between them and the ark as they're following it. And he says, the reason why is leave a space between you and the ark. Don't be rushed right up on it. Do not come near it, he says, that you may know the way by which you must go. For you have not passed this way before. So the instruction, when you see God's presence begin to move, when you see the ark begin to move forward as it leads the way, he says, you go after it, but... Be patient, be, be, be wise and prudent, he says, and, and don't get too close or too near to it, but leave a space between you and a sense where, where God is moving and what God's doing. Uh, the idea here, of course, certainly first and foremost, is just practical. If you think of, again, as I said, this massive multitude of people, imagine even just a million people and, and the size of the ark, 
if everybody was just crowded in on it, all these people, other than maybe about 100 people who could see where the ark was, all the rest of the 99.9% .9 of people would not be able to experience following. The, all they would see is the back of somebody's head. They wouldn't be following the presence of God. They'd be just following the next person's head in front of them. They wouldn't be able to keep their eye, if you would, on the Lord. And this is the whole picture here. Keep your eye on the Lord and follow what the Lord is doing. So practically, for them to allow a good 3,000 feet, everybody could then, in a sense, share in the experience of keeping their eye on where God's going themselves and they could follow where God is leading. And God didn't want any one of them to be robbed of that opportunity. So they were to allow some space between them and God, in a sense, if you would, giving God some room to move and work. And can I just say there's a great life lesson in that when God's on the move and when God is going to work, sometimes you got to give God some space. Sometimes you need to let God have some room to do what God's going to do. He needs to go before you. Don't go rushing in too quickly. Let God move and you just follow along at the right pace and the right time. And sometimes we want God to work, but we don't want to give God room to work. Give God room to work. Give him space. Keep your eye on the Lord. See where he's going. Don't go rushing past him and, okay, I kind of see where he's going. That's good enough. And then you go, no, let God move and you just stay at the right distance. Keep your eye because if he takes a turn and you go running forward, you're going to be off track real quick. So give God space to work here. And he says the reason why they were inexperienced. He says, you're about to do something you've never done before. You're about to go down a path, he says here, that you don't know the way by which you must go for you've never passed this way before. God says, listen, I'm taking you into something that you've never done before. You have no experience in this. You've never gone this way before. You've never experienced these things before. So you need my guidance. It's imperative. And when God leads us into a step in our life, in the Christian experience, whether it's being open to the things of the Spirit more, whether it's taking a step of faith and obedience in some part of God's calling or plan for our life or some change, some transitional experience, God's going to take us into a new season in our life. God says, look, you've never done this before. Let me be God. Let me guide you through the process. You're inexperienced. You don't know the way to go. So he says, the best thing you can do is just let me have room to work and keep your eye on me because you don't know which direction to take. And if you just follow me, I'll lead you and give you clarity in the process of moving forward. So again, just great counsel. Perhaps you're about to go through something you've never passed and gone through that way before. You just keep your eye on the Lord and let the Lord lead. That's the safest and the best way to go about it. Verse 5, And Joshua then said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So he now calls them to preparation for what's about to happen and isn't it interesting here? He tells them how to prepare themselves. He says, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He's talking about the miracle now of the parting of this Jordan River. We'll see as they go through it. And it isn't interesting as he speaks to them about preparation. He doesn't say to them, you would think he would say to them, remember, they're going to go into a land and God's been telling them they're going to have to defeat enemies. And he speaks nothing here of military preparation. He speaks of personal preparation sanctifying themselves to sanctify yourself means to set apart something for a, for a unique purpose and God is saying here listen I want you to prepare yourself get your heart ready get your life ready interesting here there's nothing of God's instruction of you would think he would be saying what sharpen your swords because the battles are going to start once you get into the land get your weapons ready you know, fill your muskets. I mean, there's none of that here. God doesn't say sharpen your swords. He says, get your heart ready. Get your heart ready. Because it didn't matter what kind of weaponry or what they could bring to the table, skills or no skills. If their heart's not in the right place, they're sunk. If they're not sanctified and set apart to the Lord, Lord, we have no strength on our own. We don't know what to do. We're not. But Lord, our hearts are fixed upon you. We have set apart our lives. We have dedicated our lives to you. You are our God. You are our leader. You are the commander in chief. And whatever you tell us to do, just give us our marching orders. Go before us 
And Lord, that is where we'll find victory. And God's reminding them here early on, the key to victory is not what they could bring to the table. The key to victory was their heart being in right relationship with the Lord. And if their heart was in right relationship with the Lord and they were fully dedicated and sanctified to the Lord, then that would give God room to work by his power and to do the wonders and miracles that he wanted to do. How wonderful. We, we don't, you know what we contribute to God's miracles and to God's work? Faith. Just having a heart that's prepared and saying, Lord, I believe you can do it. It's your power. It's your work. He says, you just get your heart ready. And tomorrow, he says, I am going to do wonders among you. Watch the mighty way I'm going to work tomorrow, he says, as you set apart your heart for me. Verse 6, then Joshua spoke to the priest saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant cross over before the people so they took up the ark of the covenant and they went before the people and the lord said to joshua verse 7 this day i will begin to exalt you in the sight of all israel that they may know that as i was with moses so i will be with you so in the midst of this miraculous experience of god taking them through the Jordan on dry land, parting the waters and then walking through safely to get to the other side. Through this miracle and this work, God says, part of this, Joshua, will be my way of validating to the people that you are now my God-ordained leader, that they should respond to your leadership, that you are God's man and that you will be the one used to provide direction to the people even as Moses was recognized in that sense. So God would work in this way to sort of stamp or verify Joshua's leadership. Again, because keep in mind, it's going to sound like a pretty crazy plan as he says, here's God's idea. Let's just walk headlong into a flood stage river and it'll all work out. You know, he was going to ask them to do a number of unique things where God will do miracles with the walls of Jericho and other places. So God needs the people to begin to recognize, hey, this is who's hearing from the Lord. And this is who God has put to give us guidance. And if we listen to him as he listens to the Lord, we'll be safe and we can respond to God's direction for our lives. And of course, again, as Joshua here, I think becomes a beautiful picture of Jesus. As on this day when the waters parted, Joshua was exalted. It reminds me of how Jesus at his baptism, if you remember, in the waters in a sense, was validated on that day. He said, the heavens opened, the Spirit descended upon Jesus, and the Father spoke that day and said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then you remember what he said? Listen to him. Hear him. Listen to his voice. And this is always the heart of God as a part of the life of faith. And this is a part of entering into the, the deeper spirit life uh, when we allow Jesus to be exalted in our lives, that we allow God to exalt Jesus and we fix our eyes on Jesus and we want to follow Jesus and listen to Jesus above any other voice in our life. He says, verse eight, you shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant saying, when you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So this is, this is the plan. Just tell the priest, carry the Ark, tell them to walk down and just... Go stand right in the middle of the Jordan River uh, and watch the wonders that God will do. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this, notice, by this whole experience, you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So again, God is telling them, listen, I am going to work in the way that I'm going to, this miracle of parting the Jordan, in such a way, he says, as a testimony to your hearts that God is among you. The presence of God is with you, and not just the presence of God is with them, but that they would see the power of God in such a way that what their faith would be encouraged because there's going to be a lot of battles to fight still. There are going to be enemies to conquer. The Canaanite people, the, 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 the Amorite people, the, the, the walls of Jericho, enemies. That going to, and God says, listen, I desire to work in this powerful way so that you'll know that God is among you. And that you'll know that God's going to drive out your enemies for you. You're not going to have to drive out your enemies. God will do it for you. 
God will fight the battles for you. It will be the power of God that will accomplish it. And God wanted to work in this way to manifest to them his presence to them and his power among them. And I can't help but to think how that is still the heart of God to this day among the people of God, among the congregation, that God wants us to know that the living God is among us, that we're not doing this on our own. We're not called to live the Christian life in a sense of saying, well, you know, I mean, God, I mean, God really carried the big load. and I mean, he forgave our sins and delivered us out of that and defeated Satan for us. And OK, so God did that. So now it's now it's our part. Now we got to conquer sin. And, and I got to you know, grit my teeth and I'm going to be a good boy and I'm going to learn how to be a good, strong Christian and, and do it for God. And God says, no, 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 that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is the living God is among you. He's with you. He's within you. And he, by his power, will drive out all the different enemy forces of the weaknesses of your flesh and the challenges that you'll face as a Christian. And he wants us to know that he will deal with things for us, that his presence was with us, his power is among us, and that we would have confidence and that our faith would be encouraged. Lord, I believe you're with me. Lord, I believe that you're going to do this, that you're going to drive out the forces that would seek to stop and to resist me. He says, verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. So God tells them the ark will pass over before them. He then in verse 12 here gives this instruction that Joshua was to select 12 men, one from every tribe. Now, at this point, he gives them no other information what the reason for that is. The answer of why he just selected 12 men doesn't come until chapter 4 and after they've actually crossed over the Jordan. So God gives them one little piece of information. By the way, Joshua, pick 12 men. Pick one representative of each one of the 12 tribes and then he gives no more information. He'll get more information on that later. And have you ever noticed sometimes that's a part of the life of faith as well? God will give you one little sentence of information. And he says, here's one little piece. Uh, okay, Lord, uh, the rest of the uh, instruction manual, you know what? Just do the one thing that I asked you to do. And the more information to follow, you know, further information to come, more information to follow. And sometimes a part of the spirit filled and faith lived out life is the Lord gives us one simple instruction, but he doesn't tell us the whole picture. He doesn't tell us the whole story. He doesn't tell us even why he tells us to do certain things. Lord, I picked out 12 men. They're all asking me, Joshua, why are you picking out 12 men? I have no idea. God just told me to do it. <laughs> I mean, imagine what this was like. Uh, God told me to pick out 12. In, and, you know, so will you be one representative and will you be the representative from Judah? Okay, yeah. What am I doing? I actually don't know yet. God just told me just to pick 12 people. When he gives me more information, I'll give you more information. And what's he got to do? He's got to wait in faith. He's got to do what God asks him to do in faith and wait until God gives the next instruction or more information. And sometimes that's a part of walking things out. You do what God tells you and you wait upon God in faith to give you the next instruction and follow along and he gives it to you. So verse 13, he goes right back to the other subject and it shall come to pass. Notice, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand up as a heap. And so it was, verse 14, I have that circled because God says this is what's going to happen. And the Bible says, and so it was. God always performs with his power what he promises with his mouth. So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan, again, here the Holy Spirit tells us, overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, indicating to us this is the spring flood season that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and they rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city which is beside Zeratan. So the waters went down into the Sea of Arabah, the salt sea failed and were cut off and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So God says, this is the plan. Tell the priests to take the ark, this very precious, valuable thing, and tell them what's going to happen is this. Tell them to, in faith, 
walk right into the floodwaters. And when they put their foot in the water and only after their foot dips into the water, only after they take that step, then will the power of God meet them and the waters will part and stand up as a heap and they'll be able to all pass through on dry ground. Now, we begin to see here that sometimes this is the way the Lord works. The Lord says, listen, this is what I want to do in your life but you need to take the step of faith. And once you take the step of faith and you put your foot in the water as an act of faith and obedience, in a sense, God says, you walk and then I'll work. If you don't walk, I won't work. You can stay on the other side of the Jordan. But God says, but Lord, couldn't you just part it first? I mean, well, that would have been much easier, wouldn't it? If God just just part of it and then, okay, now walk through. All right, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. And, you know, I feel comfortable walking, but would that have required faith? Would have certainly have required as much faith. And God calls us to live by faith and our faith in cooperation with his power. And think of it, this is much like the experience of the Red Sea in one sense, but yes, there are also differences. For example, with the parting of the Red Sea, God parted miraculously the Red Sea to deliver them out of something that they weren't supposed to be in. And sometimes that's how God does a miracle. God does a mighty miracle to deliver us and get us out of something that we no longer are supposed to be in. And then other times, God parts away where there is no way to bring us into something new that he wants us to go into and experience. So sometimes God does a miracle to get us out of something. Sometimes God does a miracle... But he says, it's not to get you out of something. I'm doing a miracle, parting an open door where there never seemed possible there could be a door because now I want to bring you into something. I want to bring you into something new, something wonderful, something that's a great experience. They both require faith. They both require trusting the power of the Lord to work. Think of the other difference. At the Red Sea, how did it work? It says at the Red Sea that Moses just stood there and it says that God said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And God parted the waters. Now God doesn't say stand still. What does God say? Step forward and see the power of God work. Tell the priest to walk into the water and imagine what they're thinking. Are, are, you, are you sure, Joshua? I mean, you want us to just, that, that's, you know, and, and they come to the edge and no doubt like you and I, there they are on the edge and they're, and they're probably hesitant thinking and they're kind of lifting their foot. You, know, you sure about that? You sure about that? And, and much like us, isn't that how sometimes God will do? He'll take us to the edge of something. And there we are. We're staring at the edge. We're looking over the edge. And, but then there comes that moment where we must choose in belief to act upon what God is saying to us and to take the step, if you would, to, to put your foot into the water. And sometimes we miss the power of God. We miss the plan of God. We miss experiencing the things God has for us because we will not take the step of faith. And that's our part. Our job is to take the step of faith. And God says, I want to work, but I'm not going to work until you take the step of faith. And then when you take the step of faith, my power will correspondingly open the doors and do everything necessary to show myself strong. So God says, you walk forward and I'll work. You walk and I'll work, God says. And here the priests needed to put their foot in the water and perhaps tonight God's been speaking to you about something or working in your life in a way and, and God is saying to you, you need to put your foot in the water. You need to take the step. You need to take the step forward in faith and, and trust the Lord. Believe his promises to you. Believe what he says is true, whether it's acting upon a promise in God's word. And you say, I don't know, but I don't understand how that my brain doesn't, you know, I just, I know the Bible says that, about, but I don't know. Listen, act upon the promise of God. Believe it. Believe it and act upon it. Is it in relation to something of the spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or praying in tongues? Believe the promise of God. Step out in faith. You step into it in faith. Believe the promise. Step into it in faith and watch the power of God work. Maybe it's taking some step of faith that God's leading you to do in your life in obedience or some, I don't know, but maybe God's saying you got to put your foot in the water. But once you do, it's amazing how once they did that, you see here, God's power was unleashed 
the waters were put back and the people were then able to cross over. So there is that part of stepping out in faith. But look at verse 17. Then it says the priests who bore the ark of the Lord of the covenant or covenant of the Lord, excuse me, it says stood firm on dry ground. Take notice, that's a miracle too because usually rivers are muddy at the bottom, are they not? So there's another miracle. They stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel crossed on the dry ground until, look at this, all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. You think that took a little while? Again, how many people? A million people, flocks, herds, tents, caravan. Uh, this wasn't like a three-minute process. This probably took hours, maybe a day, who knows? And, and what does it say had to happen? The priest, as the spiritual leaders, again, they had to take the step of faith, but notice what else they had to do. Then it says they had to stand firm on dry ground in the midst of, of the Jordan. So they're standing there looking to the right and looking to the left, and here's this huge wall of water. <laughs> you know, and they're standing there. In, they already took the step of faith, but now they have to, after they've taken the step of faith, now what do they have to do? Now they have to stand in faith. And this is another part of the spiritual life. Sometimes it's take the step of faith. But then even once you take the step of faith, I found in my Christian experience, then sometimes you got to stand firm in faith. And sometimes you got to stand in faith and say, God, I took this step of faith. I took this step of faith in obedience. And Lord, this is looking scary and, and I'm intimidated and it doesn't. And God says, no, now you need to stand. Stand in faith. Remain believing. Keep believing what I told you to do. You took the first step. Now stand in faith. Believe, trust me, don't move, don't waver, don't go... What if the priests went running back out because they got nervous? That would have been bad news for everybody. It would have taken a quick swim, you know? The priests had to stand there, and that was part of their role as a spiritual leader. And again, I want to encourage you as well. Do you want to lead the way spiritually? You need to be a person of faith. People of faith, people who take steps of faith, leaders need to be people who are not afraid to take steps of faith and they also need to be able to stand in faith and to stand firm and to trust the Lord and to hold the ground and to say, Lord, we're going to be still and know that you're God and we're going to wait upon you. We're not going to freak out. We're going to trust you to finish what you started until everything happens, until the full process unfolds. And this is another part of the element of the Christian life, to stand in faith even after sometimes you take an initial step of faith. We'll look at chapter 4, verse 1. It came to pass, it says, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying to him, take for yourselves, here's the instruction now, remember those 12 men? Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one from every tribe, command them, saying, take for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. And you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. That would be the city of Gilgal on the other side of the Jordan, right where they were heading to. And then Joshua called the 12 men whom he appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And he said to them, cross over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan. Each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come saying what do these stones mean to you then you shall answer them verse 7 that the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan the waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever so here's why these 12 men were appointed they were each to take a stone as a representative of the 12 tribes out of the river itself and they were to bring it over to Gilgal on the other side where they lodged in camp, the first location where they would arrive when they entered into the promised land and they were to set up some type of a monument or a memorial. And it was not to be something to worship in some unhealthy way, but it was to be a memorial as a reminder so that as the inquisitiveness of children would see it, and children are incredibly inquisitive, right? It's one of the gifts God's given to them. They ask questions chronically. 
Daddy, where are we going? When are we going to be there? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, and, and children are incredibly curious. They ask questions all the time. Why this? How come? Why? Where are we going? And, and, and we sometimes as parents get frustrated by that. But the reality is, is the inquisitiveness and the curiosity of a child is built into them so that we can teach as parents. These are teaching platforms. And as the kids would see a pile of stones, they would say, hey, what's that pile of stones for? Oh, son, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about our God. Let me tell you about the power of our God. Let me tell you what God did and, and what we were feeling. And yet, man, at the most unlikely time, in the most unlikely way, God told us to do this and we trusted him in faith. And, and we took a step of faith and God moved in this way. And here's this incredible opportunity to pass on the spiritual heritage to their children, to tell them of the ways of God, to tell them of the power of God. And this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to have those memorial stones. You know, in the same way they set up those stones as a memorial, I think it's a good thing once in a while. Maybe you do it not with stones. Maybe you do it with a pen and a paper and, and you, you journal down some of the, 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 the memorable ways in which God has worked so powerfully. And you record those things down so that you can reflect upon them to be encouraged. And you can convey those things and to be able to, to share with our children the experiences of how God's worked in our life. There's nothing better that we could share with our kids. Listen, we can cram theology down our children's throats and say, you sit down and we're going to have six hours of devotions. I know you're only three. But you are going to get the entire book of Exodus and Leviticus tonight. Or you can tell them the works of God that have happened in your life. And you can share with them the memories and the memorials of what God's done and, and the personal meaning of that. And that can be very impactful. You know, and they ask questions. What does it mean? Well, let me tell you what this means. Let me tell you what God did for us how God worked at that time in my life, and so on and so forth. Verse 8, And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Look at verse 9. Then Joshua set up twelve stones, look what this says, in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. So the 12 men brought stones out of the river and put them on the shoreline of Gilgal. And then for whatever reason, we're not told, Joshua then, it says, goes back into the midst of the Jordan that's stopped up right now at flood stage, and he sets up a memorial of stones which ultimately the waters will come back over and, and cover there and again what the exact purpose of that was I, you know, we're not really told I don't know 100% as a part of this memorial that he remembered that and perhaps there was some personal meaning what I do see and this is beautiful is notice that Joshua accompanied the 12 men into the river and Joshua didn't ask them to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself and in a sense Joshua joined them in their step of obedience he said you go in pick up stones and Joshua accompanied them in the midst of their obedience and what they were doing and, and it just speaks to me of how this is exactly what Jesus does Jesus asks us to take steps of obedience but anything Jesus asks us to do he does it together with us as a good shepherd, as our leader, as our Lord, he, like Joshua, joins us in our step of obedience and he's with us the whole way, partnering with us, bearing the yoke together with us and sharing in the work. Verse 10, so the priests who bore the ark stood, it says, in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed over. I bet they did hurry. <laughs> Just in case, you know, you never know. You want to get across quickly. Then it came to pass, verse 11, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it says, and the priest crossed over in the presence of the people. And then the men of Reuben, the men of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, remember they were the ones who wanted to remain on the eastern side. We've talked about them before. It says, they also crossed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 of them, as they were told to, prepared for war, crossed over before the Lord, 
for battle to the plains of Jericho. And on that day, again, notice as God said, he fulfilled, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. You know, I, I love that. Again, on that day when the power of God worked, what happened, the end result is, is Joshua was exalted in the eyes of the people. And you know what? Whenever the power of God works in the life of a Christian to bring us into the spirit-filled, promised life that God intends for us, that should be ultimately the end result above everything else is that our Joshua, Jesus, is exalted in our eyes. How do we know if the Spirit of God moved? Because people are in love with Jesus. People are focused on Jesus. People, in a sense, have enthroned Jesus in their life. That's how you can tell when a real revival, a real awakening of God's Spirit happens is people get turned on for Jesus. They just Jesus becomes exalted. He becomes so much higher in his importance and his value and his lordship over their lives. And as the power of God worked, this is what happened that way. Their Joshua was exalted in the sight of all Israel. It is interesting, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit tells us, verse 12 and 13, that the two and a half tribes that stood on the eastern side that chose not to go in, that as they crossed over here and they went in for battle... And I wonder if perhaps this is put here, again, speculation, but the men cross over. Remember, the wives and the children stood on the eastern side, but the men had to cross over and engage in the battles to help their brothers, remember, to conquer the land. And I can't help but to think here, what a sad thing, in a sense. As the 40,000 men as soldiers go over and they fight the battles, their wives, their children, who they were so concerned about and thought they had such a better life, because it would be better for them economically over here, you know, and, and more comfortable in this land that we like instead. We'll settle for less than what God's ideal is for us, that they did not realize how they had robbed their children of seeing the power of God work. Think about it. Their children never got to see the walls of Jericho fall. Their children never got to see the sun stand still at Ajalon. Their children never got to see God work in mighty ways because they didn't have the hardest parents to say, you know what, no. We are going to seek all that God has for us and we're bringing our children with us. And our children are going to be a part of that. We're not going to say, well, we're going to, you know, in a sense, settle for less because the reality is, is when, a, when, a, when parents choose to settle for less spiritually because they want to give a better life to their children in some other ways. And we don't want to, we don't want to be too fanatical with the whole spiritual thing. Because then, the, listen, you you are robbing your children if that happens. You're you're failing to let them see the power and the works of God when you bring your children into that and you say, hey, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. You're exposing your children to the works and the power and the mighty hand of God, and that's the thing that will ultimately have the greatest impact on a kid's life because more is caught than is taught. And they could stay on the other side of the eastern part of the Jordan and tell their kids, oh, we heard, we heard. But those who went in and brought their kids, they could say, we saw, we experienced it firsthand. Our parents exposed us to it. We saw the Lord work in mighty ways and what a beautiful thing that one part of Israel experienced and the other forfeited as a result. Well, let's finish up our chapter here, this section. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. And Joshua therefore commanded the priests come up from the Jordan. I bet they were glad to finally hear that, don't you think? <laughs> and it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up out of the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land now on the other side that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Again, notice once their feet arrived on the other side, God then released what he was doing. And this goes to show you the power of God works in both ways. God can restrain something by his power and then God can let it go. God can do both. God can hold something back and then God can let the flood come 
It all goes in accordance with God's power and God's plan. And now the waters come flowing back, overflowing the banks like at flood stage before. And the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua then set up there in Gilgal, as he was told. And they spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know. Notice the Bible wants us to let our children know about the things of God. You shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. Notice verse 24, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So again, they were to convey these things to talk about God's work and God's power and the way that God worked, that people may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Again, the hand of the Lord. Listen, if God did that with his hand, what can God do with his whole arm? What can God do with his whole person? We serve a God that has a mighty hand that can do incredible, powerful, miraculous things. And so therefore, he says that you may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God. That that, that should cause a sense of awe in our lives. And see, the wonderful thing is when we walk in faith, And we take steps of faith and we put our foot into the waters once in a while spiritually in those steps of obedience and following Christ. And and, and we give God a chance to work because we took a step of faith that was a little scary. The wonderful thing is you get to see the hand of God work in a powerful, mighty way. And it does something of your reverence for God. You go, wow. And it makes you stand in all of God. And then you worship God very naturally because you go, wow, look what the Lord has done. Like the psalmist says, the Lord has done this. It's, it's marvelous in our eyes. And it brings that reverence, that awe as the result of what God has done. So incredible story. Listen, tonight, perhaps the Lord's calling you to take a step of faith. Perhaps tonight the Lord is saying, put your foot in the water. Can I encourage you tonight? He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He did it at the Red Sea. He did it again at the Jordan, and nothing has changed in 2016. Let's stand. Let's pray together and worship the Lord as we close tonight.